precious Jesus today, we're so grateful that we have a God who looks down upon us this morning on this Sabbath day, and who has already sent His lovely angels to surround us, to protect us, and has sent His Spirit into this place, Lord, that we can receive a message from heaven. And God, as we worship Thee on this day, may the lovely Jesus be uplifted before our eyes. And may we understand and believe with all our heart and soul that He's coming soon. And that we may determine by God's grace and power that we will live for Him and Him only in this tragic hour. Be with us as we preach. And as Lord, as we fellowship together this day, may the richness of heaven envelop us in such a way that God, our minds may be filled and our lives may be determined to live in that with thee soon in that kingdom we pray in Jesus' name. What is the Laodicean message? Many people do not understand it. In fact, to the many Seventh-day Adventists, the Laodicean message is a message that we want to give to the world, not to the church. But if you study it carefully, the Laodicean message is the same as the Elijah message. And the Elijah message was given to the church. You see, when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel that day, he was preaching to church people, not to the world. And so it's a, um, we see the introduction of that in Malachi, the fourth chapter. If you'll turn with me there. And it says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So before Jesus came the first time, the Elijah message was given to the church. And John the Baptist was the bearer of that message. And he prepared the way of the Lord. And as we come to the end of time, we must realize that again an Elijah message must come to the church to prepare the church for the second coming. And so God at this time is raising up men and women and young people to give that Elijah message, to awaken the church to its great need. Because as we turn now to the Elijah message, I mean to the Laodicean message, we find that it, that, that people in Christ's first coming was in a deplorable state. The church was in a terrible state of apostasy, and that the message that John the Baptist brought to the church was to awaken the church to their apostasy. And uh, as we come to the second coming of Christ, we find that again the church lies in a terrible apostasy, and again there is a great need of a message to awaken the church of their apostasy. And in the 14th verse, the third chapter, we begin to read, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the, witness, the, the, beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will, what? Spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, 
that thou mayest be rich with white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, and rebuke, and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in thy throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that had an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Now, we know, friends, that the Laodicean church is the last church. It, it covers a time frame. And we find that these seven churches all the way through history cover a time frame. But they also reveal conditions in the church of that time. In Acts the Apostles, uh, in Acts the Apostles, now what did I do with you? There we are. <laughs> um, Acts the Apostles 585 it says here, the names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different periods of Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and is symbolic of the fact that the message extends to the end of time while symbols used reveal the condition of the church at different periods of history in the world. So these churches not only cover a period of history, but they also have an accumulative uh, problems of conditions that existed in the church at these seven different periods of time. And we come to the last church, all those conditions are accumulating. And so we find now as we study the Philadelphia church, that the Philadelphia church is, and, the, and the Smyrna church are the only ones that God does not condemn. They, he does not find any wrong in the Philadelphia church he finds no wrong in the Smyrna church. But the rest of the churches, he enumerates these conditions. And so, as we begin to look at this today, we find that the condition of Laodicea in the book Early Writings, page 107, Ellen White made this interesting statement concerning the condition that existed back in 1852. Already Laodicea was coming into its, uh, uh, living under its name, uh, as I have of late looked around to find the humble followers of, of the meek and lowly Jesus. My mind has been much exercised. Many who profess to be looking for the speedy coming of Christ are becoming conformed to this world and seeking more earnestly the applause of those around them than the approbation of God. They are cold and formal, like the nominal churches from which they have but a short time separated. The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe their present condition perfectly. Now this was written in 18, June 10, 1852. So we look way back in our beginnings and we find out that the Laodicean condition was already creeping into the church. And as we see all through history of our denomination, we find that Ellen White increased her statements concerning this condition. Uh, what led this church and, uh, and every church into this condition? Because the Laodicean condition is as old as sin, you see. 
as the world, as the church began to grow and it began to prosper, then it began to move into an indifferent state. Now listen, and um, in 565 of um, Acts of the Apostles, the reason many in this age of the world make no greater advancement in the divine life is because they interpret the will of God to be just what they will do. While following their own desires, they flatter themselves that they are conforming to God's will. They have no conflicts with self. They are, there are others who for a time are successful in the struggle against their selfish desire for pleasure and ease. They are sincere and earnest but grow weary of protracted effort of daily death and ceaseless turmoil. Invalence seems inviting, death to self repulsive, and they close their drowsy eyes and fall under the power of temptation instead of resisting it. The direction laid down in the word of God leave no room for compromise with evil. The Son of God was manifested that he might draw all men unto himself. He came not to lull the world to sleep, but to point out the narrow path which all must travel who reach at last the gates of the city of God. His children must follow where he has led the way, at whatever sacrifice of ease or selfish indulgence, at whatever cost of labor or suffering, they must maintain a constant battle with self. And then over on 548, this interesting statement uh, from inspiration that tells the situation that developed after the apostles uh, passed off the scene. But gradually a change came. The believers began to look for defects in others. Dwelling upon mistakes and giving place to unkind criticism, they lost sight of the Savior and His love. They became more strict in regard to outward ceremonies, more particular about the theory than the practice of faith. In their zeal to condemn others, they overlooked their own errors, they lost the brotherly love that Christ had enjoined, and the saddest of all, they were unconscious of their loss. They did not realize that happiness and joy were going out of their lives, and that having shut out the love of God out of their hearts, they would soon walk in darkness. So that's the beginning of the history of the Christian church after the apostles passed off the scene of action. And... Uh, we find that they were unconscious of what they were doing. It was so insidious, so gradual, that they, the, the, the complacency, the indifference to spiritual things. And as we read there in 565 of Acts of the Apostles, we find uh, very definitely there that there was a, 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 a selfish spirit began to envelop them. And everyone began to protect himself. And they didn't even know what was happening to them. And I believe that this is exactly the course in which the Laodicean church has followed, that they've been gradually moving into this era uh, and this con condition of time, and they did not know what was happening. You will remember that in the, in the council of the Laodicea that Jesus is on the outside, and he's knocking to get in. So that tells us that there is that there is a great need. Also, the Laodicean does not know. He does not know his condition. He is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and doesn't know it. Now, anyone that has all those symptoms should know, because when you're wretched, most people run to the aspirin bottle, and when you're blind, you know you're blind. When you're naked, you know you're naked, but the Laodicean doesn't know his condition.
And so as we read in volume 3 of the Testimonies, page 324, according to the light that God has given me in vision, wickedness and deception are increasing among God's people who profess to keep his commandments. Spiritual discernment to see sin as it exists and then put it out of the camp is decreasing among God's people and spiritual blindness is fast coming upon them. The straight testimony must be revived and it will separate those from Israel who have ever been at war with the means that God has ordained to keep the corruptions out of the church. Wrongs must be called wrongs and grievous sins must be called by the right name. All of God's people should come near to him and wash their robes of character in the blood of the Lamb. Then they will see sin in its true light and will realize how offensive it is in the sight of God. So we see here a definite situation as the straight testimony is what separates the, the dross from the, the real metal. Uh, the straight testimony separates the people who are unconcerned with the people that are concerned. And it separates the people that love God more than they love themselves or anything in this world from those that are casually approaching. And now in series B, page um, 20, we read this inspired statement, and this is series B number 2, page 20. The Laodicean message must be given with earnestness and power as a message from heaven. If it be ignored, the Lord will certainly cast away from him those whose spiritual condition is so objectionable. Christ declares that pretentious piety is nauseating to him. To the one so full of self-sufficiency, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Their works are opposed to the holy principles of God's word. So what is the Laodicean condition? It's a condition of self-sufficiency. It is a condition that feels no great need in the life. It is a condition that says, I am all right. Don't worry about me. I'll take care of myself. And it has no need for Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The Laodicean condition is a one who will walk as through a ritual and traditions of the church, but will never participate in the real experience of victory over sin. And as we turn to page 14 of this same volume, we read this statement. The dangers coming upon us are continually increasing. It is high time that we put on the whole armor of God and work earnestly to keep Satan from gaining any further advantage. Angels of God that excel in strength are waiting for us to call upon them for our aid, to our aid, that our faith may not be eclipsed by the fierceness of the conflict. Renewed energy is now needed. Vigilant action is called for. Indifference and sloth will result in the loss of personal religion and of heaven. At this time, the Laodicean message is to be given to arouse a slumbering church. Let the thought of the shortness of time stimulate you to earnest, untiring effort. Remember that Satan has come down with great power to work with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. So as we begin to look at this statement, it's going to take some vigilant action, it says. And it's going to take... Um, uh, and the, the indifference and sloth will result in the loss of personal religion in heaven. At this time, the Laodicean message to be give, given to arouse a slumbering church. In Selected Messages, Volume 2, 
page 14, we get a better picture of what will happen and what is happening today. It's 114 of Selected Message, Volume 2. It says, this is our message, the very message that the three angels flying in the midst of heaven are proclaiming. The work to be done now is that of sounding this last message of mercy to a fallen world. A new life is coming from heaven, taking possession of all of God's people, but divisions will come in the church. Two parties will develop. The wheat and the tares grow up together for the harvest. The work will grow deeper and become more earnest, so to the very close of time. And all who are labors together with God will contend most earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. They will not be turned from the present message, which is already lightening the earth with its glory. Nothing is more worth contending for but by the glory of God. The only rock that will stand is the rock of ages. The truth as it is in Jesus is the refuge in these last days of error. And so, as you listened here, you'll find new life is coming from heaven and taking possession of all of God's people, but divisions will come in the church, two parties will develop, the wheat and the tares grew up together for the harvest. As we look at that statement, we can see in volume 6, an enlargement of that, in volume 6, 400 and 401, It says God's plan is to first get at the heart, speak the truth, and let him carry forward the reformatory power that, and principle. Make no reference to what opponents say, but let the truth alone be advanced. The truth can cut quick, plainly unfold the word in all of its impressiveness. As trials thicken around us, both separation and unity will be seen in our ranks. Some who are now ready to take up the weapons of warfare will in times of real peril make it a manifest that they have not built upon the solid rock. They will yield to temptation. Those who have had great light and precious privileges but have not improved them will, under one pretext or another, go out from us. Not having received the love of the truth, they will be taken in the delusion of the enemy. They will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and we depart from the faith. But on the other hand, when the storm of persecution really breaks upon us and the true sheep will hear the shepherd's voice, self-denying efforts will be put forth to save the lost and many who have strayed from the fold will come back to follow the great shepherd. The people of God will draw together and present the enemy a united front in view of the common perils, strife for supremacy will cease. There will be no disputing as to who shall be accounted the greatest. So again we get a picture as a result of the Laodicean message being given to the church. Two parties will develop in the church and separation and unity will be seen all at the same time in the church. And I believe, friends, without a question that that is being revealed to us today that there is two parties developing in the church, there are separation and unity, and it may be the greatest sign of the coming of the law. Now, as we begin to, to look at the seriousness of our problem, we find that the same problem that developed after Christ's first coming in the church, after the apostles had passed off the scene of action, the reason that they, they went into this is that it became self-sufficient. And they began to uh, they began to say 
you know, well, it's not that, that's not important. This is not important. And they compromised. And compromise is the greatest uh, tool that the devil has used in all the history of the church from its beginning to end. He has used compromise. And one compromise demands another compromise, another compromise, and sell you come to the point you don't know you've compromised. And that is where Laodicea is this morning, is they don't know they've compromised. And now when the straight testimony comes to the church, it sounds like air. It sounds like something that's causing divisiveness. But we must remember, friends, that truth does not divide, that, that uh, it is air that's divided. When truth comes in contact with air, it divides. And people will have to make their decision of which way they're going to go. And if they're not ready to make that decision, what will happen is that they'll gradually move away. And as we read here, that they'll, they'll leave us. And... We find that in volume uh, 8 of the Testimonies, page 41, she saw standard after standard trailing in the dust with company after company joining the ranks of the fro and tribe after tribe uh, joining the ranks of the in uh, coming in to join the church. Uh, and so we see here a tremendous shaking uh, is already in, in force in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And in this shaking time, we are found that in volume 5, 136, she says the majority of God's people will reject us and join the ranks of the enemy. And friends, that's a frightening thought, don't you think? A frightening thought to think that the majority of God's people in Adventism today are going to join the ranks of the enemy. And because they have not sank, sunk the shaft down deep into the rock Jesus Christ, they have no foundations to stand on. They build on the sand. And when the storm of persecution blows, they find that washes them, sweeps them away. As I have said that uh, the Laodicean does not does not know his condition, you see, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He doesn't know his condition, and so the only way he can understand his condition and is to buy of Jesus gold tried in the fire. As we read in volume 5, uh, volume 5, page 233, this inspired statement. Again and again has the voice from heaven addressed you. Will you obey this voice? Will you heed the counsel of the true witness to seek the gold tried on the fire, the white raiment and the eye salve? The gold is faith and love. The white raiment is the righteousness of Christ. The eye salve is the spiritual discernment which will enable you to see the wiles of Satan and shun them, to detect sin and abhor it, to see truth and obey it. The deadly lethargy of the world is paralyzing your senses. Sin no longer appears repulsive because you are blinded by Satan. The judgments of God are soon to be poured out upon the earth. Escape for thy life is the warning from the angels of God. And so, friends, we have come to a moment in which we must realize there, there is no time to delay. There is no time no, any longer to compromise. There is no time now to try to put one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We must be all 100% with Jesus Christ. What do you say? Amen. And in this message as we bring it to you today, the Laodicean message, my friends, is a, tr is a message that has to come to every Seventh-day Adventist church. It, we cannot go to the loud cry and tell the, the church has heard its own message. Tragically, 
we find that the pulpits today are being occupied many times by those who do not understand the great uh, Adventist message. And they do not understand the, the, the marvelous truths that are in the, the sanctuary. And they do not understand the three angels' messages. And very few Seventh-day Adventists today are really keeping Sabbath. Did you know that? Very few Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, we wouldn't go to work on Sabbath. We wouldn't mow the lawn on Sabbath. But I want to tell you, Sabbath-keeping is something you do in the mind. And if you're not in a worshipful state of mind, my friends, you're not keeping Sabbath. <coughs> if your mind is running rampant around and doing things of the world and planning what you want to do when the new week begins and things like this, and talking about things that, that happened last week, friends, you're not keeping Sabbath. Sabbath-keeping is a worshipful time, is a worshipful mind is your willingness to, to bring yourself and your life and your mind, your household, everything into a worship uh, on that Sabbath hour. And that we're not, uh, we're not approaching the Sabbath uh, with things that we should have been done during the week. So many Seventh-day Adventists today uh, find themselves doing things on Friday night that they shouldn't do because they haven't made the proper preparation during the week. Sabbath planning should begin on Sunday morning when we could plan exactly how we're going to approach the Sabbath, and that every member of that family knows exactly what it has to do. So at least a half an hour or an hour before the sun sets, that the family is there in worship and have prepared their minds for worship. And friends, if we don't learn to keep the Sabbath here, we'll never keep it with Jesus in heaven. Do you realize that? We'll never keep it in heaven if we don't learn to keep the Sabbath now. And so Sabbath keeping is part of the problem of Laodicea, you see. And uh, we find that today that the Sabbath is, uh, is uh, made just a little thing. And we find many people, even in America, I don't know what it is here, going to restaurants on the Sabbath, after church on the Sabbath. And we find that, that uh, our gather, people are gathering together and in their talk together in the potlucks and things like this, there is all kinds of conversation that should not be carried on upon the Sabbath day. And let me tell you, friends, I'm afraid to go into people's homes on Sabbath because I find that they do not know how to control the conversation. And I have to continually bring the conversation back to Sabbath keeping. So we must learn to keep the Sabbath. The Laodicean does not keep Sabbath. Oh, he keeps it like the Jew, you know. I mean, he, he, stop, he shuts the shop, you know, uh, one minute before the sun goes down and races home. And uh, his mind is, is cluttered up with business of the, of the last week. And all Sabbath day, he's planning, he's planning what he's going to do next week. And that's the problem of Laodicea. And if you get my book that I have compiled called Preparing for Eternity, it's a compilation of uh, about 30 different subjects from the Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible. And in that, I have a chapter on Sabbath keeping. If you get that, you'll want to study it carefully. But the Laodicean, my friends, is in a desperate state and doesn't know his condition. And we must know. Now, as we turn to volume, as we turn to volume one uh, of the testimonies, we find in volume one, page 181 through 187, a very interesting statement. It says. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen, and I was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony, 
called forth by the counsel of the true witness of the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this will cause a shaking among God's people. The testimony of the true witness has not been half-heated. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance, and all, who, and, and all that truly receive it will obey it and be purified. So it says, my attention was then, uh, I won't read that, but it says here that the testimony of the truth has not been half-heated. The solemn testimony in which the dust of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this will cause the shaking among God's people. And then as you read over on 187, a very interesting statement appears here through inspiration. <clears throat> it says, God leads his people on step by step. He brings them up to different points, calculated to manifest what is in the heart. Some endure at one point, but fall off at the next. At every advanced point, the heart is tested and tried a little closer. If the professed people of God find their hearts opposed to this straight work, it should convince them that they have a work to do to overcome. If they would not be spewed out of the mouth of the Lord, said the angel, God will bring his work closer and closer to test and prove every one of his people. Some are willing to receive one point, but when God brings them to another testing point, they shrink from it and stand back because they find that it strikes directly at some cherished idol. Here they have an opportunity to see what is in their hearts and shuts out Jesus. Now you notice we mentioned in the Laodicean condition that Jesus is on the outside trying to get in. He's knocking to get in. Here they have an opportunity to see what is in their hearts that shuts out Jesus. They prize something higher than the truth and their hearts are not prepared to receive Jesus. Individually, individuals are tested and proved at length to time to see if they will sacrifice their idols and heed the counsel of the true witness. If any will not be purified through the obeying of the truth and overcome their selfishness and their pride and evil passion, the angels of God have the charge. They are joined to their idols. Let them alone. And they pass on to their work, leaving these with their sinful traits unsubdued into the control of evil angels. Those who come up to every point and stand every test, and overcome be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, then they will receive the latter rain, and thus be fitted for translation. Solemn words. Don't you think? Solemn words. <coughs> because there is no question, my friends, the shaking is here. The shaking of the church is going on, and has been going on for some time. As I brought out last night, the shaking begins with false theories, we are told, in Testimonies to Ministers 112 in Volume 5707. Uh, shaking, too, is just what we've read, straight testimony. It must come to the church, and when it comes, many will rise up against that straight testimony. 
And when they rise up against the state testimony, what they don't understand is that they're beginning to close the door. And when the door closes, the true witness says, leave them alone. They're joined to their idols. And the angels move on to their work and leave them in control of evil angels. And only those that are ready to overcome on every point, it says, will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. And friends, that latter rain experience is coming. And it soon will reach a crescendo in which it will fill the whole earth. And it will, the word will go like fire in the stubble. You remember in Colossians 1.23, it says the gospel went to the whole world back there in Paul's day. How did it go? By simple people with an experience. You see? And that experience electrified the world. And it brought thousands and thousands of people into the church back there. It happened again back in, uh, in uh, the first uh, second angel's message in the, in the Millerite movement, in the midnight cry. I mean, there was an experience among God's people, and the whole world heard the message. The reason that this church has not been able to complete its task is because it has not had the experience. You see, the experience of righteousness by faith is a victory over sin experience in which every sin is confessed. Everything is made right with your fellow man and with God. And then day by day the, the individual begins to grow in grace that the character of Christ might be perfectly reproduced in them. And they have the joy and peace that passes knowledge. They love God and their fellow men with all their heart and soul and mind and body. And they have only one mission in life, and that is to help others to have the experience that they have. And in this experience, in this experience, my friends, where I see already the beginnings, and I believe that you are here today because of that experience. Am I right? Yes. Because that experience is coming into your life, you have come to this place because you feel a great need for a closer walk with Jesus Christ. And when the end, when the when, when the end comes, friends, when Jesus, when probation closes, it'll be those people who have been seeking after righteousness with all their heart and soul and mind and body. It's if you seek me, ye shall find me. When ye shall what? Search for me with how much? All your heart. Anything less than that will be lost. See, it's going to. We must seek with all our heart. It says the battle of self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, the surrendering all to the will of God, and being clothed in humility and possessing that love that is pure and peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of gentleness and good fruits, is not an easy attainment, yet it is our privilege and our duty to be a perfect overcomer here. That's volume 3 of the Testimonies 106 and 107. Not an easy attainment, yet it is our privilege and our duty to be a perfect overcomer here. We must be a perfect overcomer. Not by what we do, but what we ask Jesus to do in us. You see? I can't do anything, but I must be willing to be made willing to let God do it in me. You see? I, if I, you see, I can't do anything to be saved, but if I don't do something, I'm going to be lost. But I'm not, I don't do something to be saved. I do something because he saved me. And there's a difference, you see. It's a love relationship with God because of the great sacrifice that God has given to the human race. As God gave Jesus to the world, 
my friends, and Jesus came and left his crown and his robe and came down to this world to the very level of fallen human beings. That's beyond your understanding and mine, how God would do that. But a God who can make a world out of nothing, and a God who can create a, a being that resembles himself and looks like himself and acts like himself and talks like him, as he made Adam. And then... Uh, we have a God that can do that, then we have a God that can recreate us to be just like Adam. And that's what God is trying to do. The whole plan of salvation is to recreate the human race. All those that will, will, will call upon the name of the Lord and be willing to be made willing to merge their will with God's will, that their mind might be mind one with God's mind, then they have the ability to think God's thoughts, and with that comes God's life, because God's power is in the life, and then he will clothe them with a the garment of his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? We must be clothed with a garment of his righteousness every day. And as we talk this afternoon on Job the perfect man, that, that marvelous law of God is the protection that God puts around his saints to protect them from sin and temptation. And so in this, in this condition of Laodicea, we find that it is an unsavable condition. It is a condition that we must repent of and we, before we can repent of it, we must understand that this condition is going to destroy us if we don't get out of it. Now, I would just like to say here, and by the way, uh, where's Richard? Is Richard around? Um, I need somebody to go up to my room and get uh, my book... Uh, my little book, I forgot to bring it down, my little book called uh, Waymarks of Adventism. I think it's there someplace in, things are not too tidy up there right now. <laughs> but we must, friends, come into this relationship that God is, is offering to us in this meeting today and in every meeting in the church all through the world today. God is drawing men and women like yourselves into this relationship. He's calling and he's knocking, he's asking to come in. And the tragedy is that the majority are not hearing his call. They're not hearing the knock at the door. And as a result of that, that majority will be lost. And as we begin to think on these things, friends, on this Sabbath day, we must remember that we have come here for one purpose, and that is, thank you, We've come here for one purpose, and that is to revive and, and to reform. Am I right? We must bring every thought, every word, every action into harmony with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you an examination today to see if we are really Laodiceans. If you will bear with me, my text is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So it's time for examination. Every day is a time to examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith or not. And the tragedy is that Laodicean hasn't been doing any examining. 
they think they're right, they think they're all right, and when, when, uh, when a message like this comes to them, the majority rise up against that message and say, this is divisive, this is causing trouble. But listen, question number one of the examination. Do you know as much about the truth you profess to believe as you do about the techniques of your employment? And can you give a reason for the hope that is within you as readily as you can discuss these other things? Good question. You see, uh, we read the newspaper very carefully. We watch the television. We watch the newscast. And most of us can discuss almost every subject that comes along politically or religiously or whatever it may be that we can, discuss, we can discuss. But can we discuss the important truths that God has given to this church? Do you know as much about the truth you profess to believe as you do about the technique of your employment? And can you give reason for the hope that is within you as readily as you can discuss these other things? Number two. Do you spend as much time with your Bible as with the newspaper and the television or the radio and as much time on your knees as before the mirror and idle talk? Do you spend some time at least twice a day alone with God or are you too busy? Good question. Number three. What do you, the special messages of God in this, to this people in the spirit of prophecy mean to you? Do you believe the testimonies? Do you act as if you believe them? Do you know what is in them? Are you desirous enough to finding out the will of God to take time to study them? Or are you too busy? Number four. Do you keep Sabbath or do you keep Saturday? Are you kept at toil the remaining six days of the week? Is the seventh day to you a holy day or is it a holiday? Do you keep it according to Isaiah 58, 13? Do you jealously safeguard its edges? Good question. Number five. Are you faithful in your attendance at the house of God? Do you attend Sabbath school and prayer meeting and take part therein? And while you're in church, are you reverent? Do you go out better than you came in? If you must choose between prayer meeting and television, which do you choose? Good question. Uh, many people tell me there's no use of going to permitting anymore because, I mean, the things that go on there are not uplifting. They don't help anybody. And let me tell you, friends, I don't care. You better be in permitting because your presence there means something. And the, your ability to help guide the meeting, your prayer there for people may be something that will help another person. So... I want to tell you today, every Seventh-day Adventist needs to go to prayer meeting. And if you're, if you're in this revival, reform experience that God is bringing to the church, you want to be in prayer meeting and help others to get in a prayer and reform uh, re experience. Six, is your home life what it ought to be? Is the family altar there, protecting the home against irritations and disunity? Is home the place where children love to be? And do you make religion attractive to them? Is the television and radio and the hi-fi in your home there to God's glory? Good question. Friends, the tragedy that I find in the Adventist church today is because the altar has disappeared. 
and mothers and fathers are not are too busy to have family worship with the children in the morning and in the evening and uh, the family is in a race to get ready to go to school uh, get ready to go to work and tragedy is that many times that uh, the home life has demanded a second paycheck so mother works too and the home is disintegrated and uh, let me tell you friends I want to tell you that the mother belongs in the home with the children not at work and we must learn to live on a more simpler basis so that mother can be at home and teach the children and have that tremendous atmosphere that God intended that a mother should give to the home to the children. And the family altar must be there every morning and every evening. We must be in prayer with the children and prepare the children for eternal life. And let me tell you right here, friends, that I find in most Adventist homes that I go that children are not being instructed in a way that will take them to heaven. If we do not demand obedience of our children, if we are allowing them, talking to them, but not demanding obedience and telling them why they need to obey, it, we're preparing them for destruction. And I go into homes and mothers are hollering at the children and, and, and never following through. And my friends, there is discord, on uh, 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 disharmony, and a... A child grows up without the understanding of obedience. And therefore, when it comes to obedience to the law of God, I mean, he doesn't understand that either. And what we've done is we've prepared our children for destruction because we didn't teach them obedience in the home. Now, I don't mean the harshness type of where you come down and, and, and you know, like this. I think the children need to be taught loving obedience. And the reason why obedience is necessary. And when mother speaks or father speaks, the child knows instantly there's no time to delay. It's time to move, time to act, time to get things done. But tragically, I find in most homes that this has not, not been done. And therefore, children have a casual approach. And after there has been four or five uh, calls made and then the, the voice is raised and finally the child begins to move. A child should understand that when mother speaks or father speaks, it's time to do it right there. And if you do that, friends, you'll, you'll be, you're teaching your children to obey the, the laws of the home so they can understand the laws of God and you're preparing for eternity. <clears throat> And concerning the television and the radio and the hi-fi in your home, I pray to God, if you have it, that you're, it's dedicated there in such a way that you're not looking at the things of the world. Because television today is the most dangerous thing you can put in your house if it's not controlled. And there'll be more Seventh-day Adventists going down to hell over television, I think, than any other one thing. Because all the time that they spent in front of the television set, they should have spent with the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy and prepared their lives for eternity. Number seven, do the kind of clothes you wear make people remember not your clothes but your inner spiritual beauty? Are you as concerned about the garments of Christ's righteousness as you are about the latest styles? Number eight, do you converse as in the hearing of God's angels? Do you talk more about yourself or about the Lord? Would your vocabulary, if people did not know your profession, mark you as a Christian, or would it mark you as a worldly? Good question. Number nine, do you profess, do you refuse to listen to, as well as pass on gossip? 
One of the most destructive things is, my friends, is speaking about something about somebody else without talking to that individual first. You should never speak about another person unless you're ready to go talk to him first. And there is more people in the Adventist church have been destroyed by rumors and by telephone conversations after church. Did you see her dress today? Did you see this? Did you see that? And I can remember my wife was in college. Of course, that was about 45 years ago. And she said that a girl came to college and dressed very poorly. She was had a big heavy coat on. She wore a big coat that was too big for her, and her shoes were too big. And so the girls in college at one of our Adventist colleges began to kind of make fun of her. And because she wore this big coat all the time, it rumored around that she was pregnant. And my friends, it finally reached her, and it, it, she wasn't even an Adventist yet. She'd just been studying the message, and somebody had, had raised the money to, to put her there uh, for her tuition and her, things like this. And immediately she left the, the, left the college. You can imagine the destruction of souls that has happened because of people who talk about other people who, you see, gossip is of the devil. Any kind of gossip is of the devil. And the devil, he's used gossip to destroy thousands upon tens of thousands of people. And we should never repeat anything that we're not able or willing to go and talk to the individual first about. Is that right? Number ten, are you always truthful? Or do you sometimes disassemble? Are you absolutely straightforward and careful in all your financial dealings? And are you pure in thought and word and in deed? Eleven, does your first tenth go to God? Do you give not only regularly, but do you give proportionally, but sacrificially? Do you spend more per year for your personal pleasure than you do for the extension of God's kingdom? Good question. You see, that what, what made the gospel go, friends, in, in the days of the apostles was that they sacrificed. <coughs> you see? They, uh, they, they found out how little they could live on so they could give all they could. And uh, Paul, you remember, was a tent maker, and so many times he made tents because he had to have money to put the roof over their heads, and he had, money, had to have money to put the food on the table. But every dime... Every dime that was left over went to the extension of God's work. And when the Seventh-day Adventist church get to the point, people get to the place in their experience where they're ready to take every dime that they can possibly spare to put into God's work, it won't take long for God to finish this work. Number 12. Are you advancing or are you standing still mentally and spiritually? Are you trying to live on the stale and musty experience of years ago? Number 13, are you living up to all the light on health reform? If you are a real Seventh-day Adventist, if you are not, why not? Health reform, my friends, is... You see, Ellen White makes the statement. She says, if we overcome on appetite, we overcome what? On every other point. <coughs> and so we must overcome on appetite. We must be health reformers. 
we must bring our life into conformity to the rules and regulations that God has laid down to have a healthy body because this body is the temple of God and if we defile the temple of God, God will destroy us. And you see, uh, the health reform message is more than just uh, uh, vegetarianism. The health reform message is living in conformity to all the eight natural methods of healing in the body day by day. It's drinking enough water, it's uh, having fresh air, good rest, and all of these other things, proper exercise. Uh, I think one of the greatest sins that Adventist people have is they don't exercise. Uh, we're too busy, you see. I'll tell you a little story. I almost died in 1960 in Africa with amoebic dysentery and malaria. And I laid in bed for nine months as a result of it. And my heart was bad because of the treatment that they gave me had arsenic in it because the amoeba had got into my liver and the only way they could reach it in the liver in those days was an emantine treatment which had arsenic. They have since had other ways of doing it, but as a result of that, my heart went out, my kidneys went out, my adrenalines went out. I was just a basket catch. And uh, I lingered between life and death for quite some time. I remember one night I was looking at the ceiling and my wife had run to the neighbor missionary to get some help because she thought I was dying. And I looked at the ceiling and I said, God, will I ever preach again? And God wrote it into my mind, Brother Spear, you're going to preach again. And then after nine months of laying in bed, I finally got out of bed. And I said, God, teach me how to get my health back, my strength back, because I was always a very active man. I, I grew up on the farm and in the logging camps, and, and I was always strong. And uh, I, I could put two men on one side of the wagon, and at the other end of the day, I could do as much as the two men. And that's the way I grew up. That's the way I lived. That's the way I was. And... Uh, and being in that kind of condition of laying in bed for nine months was just almost more than I could stand. But I said, God, teach me how I can get my strength back. And the Lord said, run. But I said, Lord, I can't even walk hardly. But I started to run. And I'd run 100 feet and walk 100 feet. And I just kept that up for several months until I got where I could run a mile. And then I got where I could run two miles. And then I was running three miles. And then I was running up to seven miles. And after two years of running, they sent me back to Africa. And uh, so I, I have kept up the careful relationship to the health message all through the years. And as a result of that, at a, here I've reached old age, and yet I have a young body. And I believe I still have a young mind. Because I have followed the health message. I eat as best I can to the health message. Uh, traveling sometimes, it's a little difficult, but I've always managed. Uh, all through my years in Africa, I never had to eat meat. It's not necessary. People think you have to eat meat to be to subsist. I know that my union president out there said, Ron, you've got to eat meat or you'll die out here. But uh, I proved that that's not true. Uh, flesh eating is not necessary because you can get the proper in grains, nuts, and fruits and vegetables. You can get the, the, all the nutrients that the body needs. And uh, so, friends, we need to be in a careful uh, approach to, our, to the health message. Be sure that we're living to that <coughs> message to the best of our ability. Now, I don't use any animal products, except sometimes I'm placed on an airplane, 
going someplace and I order a vegetarian meal and suddenly I've got uh, some, uh, some uh, eggs in front of me. And I look at them and I don't eat them as a normal rule. But I think we need to be careful that we don't get fanatical on the point and find out if I didn't eat something, I'd find that when I got to the end of the thing, my body wouldn't be strong. And so I sometimes uh, use eggs if I have to. But normally I'd never have them at home and I'd never have them anyplace else. But I think that we see fanaticism is a, is a fine line. And... Uh, you, you, fanaticism is the overemphasizing one side of truth to the neglecting of the other side of truth. And so we must be careful. And uh, I believe that, that as a result of my carefulness over the years in following the health message that I believe today at, uh, at a good old age that I'm still strong. And I believe that every one of us, if we'll follow the health message, I think that God will reward us with good strength and good health. What do you say? <laughs> And that's why Ellen White had to write, you know, that if we overcome on appetite, we overcome on every other point. Number 14, do you test all your reading and music and associations and amusements by Colossians 3.17? And whatsoever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Can you go to movies in the name of Jesus? Or watch them on television? Can you eat hot dogs or hamburgers or drink Cokes or tea or coffee in the name of Jesus? Listen, friends, whatever you can't do in the name of Jesus, you can't do it all. Is that right? Amen. Number 15. Are you looking to men to pattern by or to excuse yourself by or to copy or to stumble over? Have you determined that whatever anyone else may do or does not do, <coughs> you will follow Jesus all the way? Number 16, do you refuse to harbor grudges? Do you love everybody? Have you forgiven everyone and everything as Christ forgave you? Do you return good for evil or do you retaliate? Have you victory over yourself? Number 17, do you hate sin? How much? Do you look at the smallest sin with abhorrence? Are you countenancing any known sin in your life today? Number 18, are you a soul winner? If soul winning is soul winning your chief interest in life, how many souls have you won to Jesus Christ? Good question. How many souls? You see, the born-again experience, my friends, immediately electrifies the soul with a great burden to share that marvelous love of God with others that you come in contact with. And uh, I think that the tragedy that I see with many, most Seventh-day Adventists that we've got suddenly into the idea that we're not equipped to be soul winners and the pastor has been trained to do that and so we pay tithe to let him do the soul winning and that relieves us of all responsibilities. But that is a lie, friends. That's the devil's lie. <laughs> that we, each one of us, should be a soul winner to Jesus Christ and our chief interest in life should be to draw others to Jesus Christ through the experience that God has given to us. And every one of us should be involved with soul winning of some kind or another. Now, I want to tell you a story about a young man that I baptized four or five years ago. His name is Sam. And Sam uh, was one of these young men who loved the Lord, but his background was one in which he had uh, been a ball player. Uh, he had been playing college ball, and he was so good 
that the scouts, the scouts had chosen him to go to the big leagues, which mean, as you know, some of these, these big league players make horrendous amounts of money. And he was so thrilled that he had been chosen, and he decided that he would go out with the boys and celebrate. And uh, that night they were driving home, and they had too much to drink, and uh, Sam hit a tree. And he was laid unconscious for three or four weeks in the hospital. And uh, when he came out of it, he gradually began to go back and tried to play ball again, but his equilibrium wasn't the same, and he just didn't have the quickness that he once had. And it wasn't long that he realized that he could never play ball. He said he practiced sometimes six hours a day, hoping that that would come back, but it never came back. And in his discouragement, he began to drink heavily, and then he went into drugs. And a little Pentecostal lady found him in this condition, and she began to take him to church. And he made a commitment to God there, and he even got to speaking in tongues. And that's where I found Sam. And Sam studied our message, and we baptized him in the church the only one that I ever baptized out of tongues that really got rid of them. Uh, you know, tongues are a difficult thing for people to give up. And uh, Sam was one of these men. He was so thrilled with a great message that God had given to him that uh, he, he's the kind of fellow that can stand on a street corner and tap you on the shoulder and say, Do you know Jesus Christ? Now, I don't do that, but Sam can. And... Uh, uh, he was just filled with the great love of God that God had rescued him from the situation that he'd been in. And uh, he was working in a big paper mill, you know, and the, he unloaded the logs that came in. And it was down south where the, in the summertime it gets 100 degrees and the humidity gets to about 90 or maybe a little more. And uh, <coughs> he had... He had witnessed to everybody in the plant until the, the, everybody was determined they're going to get rid of him, or many of them were determined to get rid of Sam. They pushed him. They, you know, they made it difficult on him. They did everything because they didn't like him because he was always telling people how God, great God was. And uh, so this day he had a one that worked with him, and uh, he had witnessed to this man about the power of God and. The, the heat was about 100 degrees and the humidity was about 90 and the perspiration was just pouring off of them. And it's one of those days that even hard to breathe. And uh, the man turned to, to Sam and he said, Listen, if that God is so great, why don't you ask him to make the wind blow so it will cool this place off? And Sam bowed his head and said, God, you heard him. Make the wind blow. And he said, Ron, he said, the wind began to blow. <laughs> and the man looked up startled and he said, all right, tell him to make it blow harder then. And Sam bowed his head again and he said, God, you heard him make it blow harder. And he said, Ron, it blew harder. Now that's the type of relationship God would like to have with his people. Isn't it? That's the type of a relationship God wants each one of us to have. That we can say, God, make the wind blow and God will make it blow. Sam is coming to, to be with me sometime in November to be part of my staff. As we go on to the 18th, the 19th is finally do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ instead of yourself? Is your all upon God's altar? 
Friends, those are the 19 questions that you and God will have to deal with in the judgment. Are you really a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, do you have that experience with Jesus Christ? Uh, or are you into Laodicea? Now, there's different degrees of Laodicea. But friends, each one of us in this room today needs to be extracted by the power of Jesus Christ to get out of that relationship, out of that condition of Laodicea and have the beautiful relationship that God is ready to give us, each one, whether we're young or old or a child, whatever it may be. We, he can give that experience to us now. We don't have to wait for tomorrow. We don't have to wait for another day. It can happen to us right now. Do you believe that? And God wants to have that experience. It's a saving experience. If we have the experience of Laodicea, friends, there's nothing that God can do to save us until we come out of it. And so, friends, I want to tell you today that as we enter upon this day, this is a day, a high day, a special day, a day in which Jesus has come to this room, to this building, and where the angels have gathered about us, where the Holy Spirit is here to work in a mighty way to revive us and reform us, to bring us into that relationship that we might be able to be prepare ourselves to witness of the power of God as we go home from this place. That's what it's all about. If you go home with self-satisfied and said, well, I, I was surely refreshed. But if you don't go home and share that experience, friend, this meeting didn't do anything for you. We must go to our churches, back to our churches, wherever you come from, with a revival and reform uh, experience. And that we might, in the most tender way, bring people to Jesus Christ. You see, the tragedy that I've seen in the past, that people begin to go home and they, they take the spirit of prophecy books and they begin to hit the, the, their fellow men on the head with it and said, look, you're a sinner. You better come, you better come to Jesus Christ and look what, what it says here. But friends, the only way we're going to turn the people around is the lifestyle that Jesus, we're willing to let Jesus put into our lives. When the, when, the, when the church begins to see that the beauty of Jesus in us, when they begin to see that we are changed, and that the love of Christ is there. And that we love them with all our heart and soul. We want them in the kingdom or that we want to be saved ourselves. When they see that in us, they're going to desire to have that experience too. And they're going to come to us and say, would you help me? You see. But when we go to them with judgmental attitudes and, and a, a better than thou attitude, then what we do, they turn away from us. So you see there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that have the wrong theology but the right spirit. But there's going to be nobody in heaven with the right theology and the wrong spirit. You see that? We must have the sweet spirit of Jesus in our lives. We must have that love that passes all understanding. We must want people saved in the kingdom more than we want to be saved ourselves. Friends, that only comes from prayer and study the Word of God. And let me tell you, the only cure that I have found for Laodicea is study and prayer. Study to show yourself approved on a God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed. What? Rightly dividing the Word of truth. And friends, many times I have stood by my desk at 3.34 o'clock in the morning with my Bible in my hands and sung the doxology all by myself because of what Jesus had taught me through the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need to get into the Word of God. 
how we need to memorize Scripture every day. I have memory cards that I walk with when I'm out uh, walking in the morning. And I memorize Scripture. I memorize Spirit of Prophecy. And during the day, when I'm traveling uh, along, I can call those back to mind. If I'm in a car or I'm in an airplane, I take out my cards and I begin to go through them again and refresh my memory. And as I do that, the blessing of the Lord increases. Yes, sir. And study the Word of God, my friends. Study the Word of God. Read it through again and again and again and again. And as you do, new things continually come to you. The Spirit of the Lord teaches you things that you haven't seen before. You may have read it a thousand times and you haven't seen that. But the Holy Spirit teaches you the beauty of a certain beautiful uh, of truth that you haven't seen before. And oh, friends, we need to envelop ourselves in the Word of God. Wrap ourselves in it night and day. Because... That's what transforms the life because Jesus is the Word. Am I right? Jesus is the Word. And as we study the Word of God, as we memorize the Word of God, we find that our bodies and minds are strengthened and we're prepared to meet the enemy. You see, the tragedy that I see in the Laodicean condition is this. that people haven't, don't have the altar in their home. Uh, they don't study the Word of God only maybe just a few minutes on Sabbath mornings because of the tremendous pressures of life. But let me tell you, friends, you better go to bed earlier at night and get up earlier in the morning and spend some time with God before you begin the day. Because if you don't, the devil's going to have you. And uh, as, you, as you begin to study the Word and as you memorize <coughs> Scripture, take a Scripture and put it up in, when you're washing dishes, ladies, Memorize scripture. Uh, put a, a the men when you go to the workbench. I mean, put a scripture up there and refresh your mind through the day. The only way to beat the devil is with, with scripture. How did Jesus? How did Jesus do it? He he used scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. Let me tell you, when you start quoting scripture to the devil, he doesn't hang around too long because he hates it. He can't stand it. So if you want to get rid of temptation, just start quoting scripture to the devil and he'll get out. You see? We'll speak more of that tomorrow this afternoon. But let me tell you, friends, we're moving on swiftly to the end of all things. The coming of the Lord is at our doors. And the Laodicean condition is a condition that cannot be tolerated by God. It's going to be spewed out of his mouth. And anyone that retains that condition in any degree is going to be, is going to be lost. And we need to get rid of the Laodicean condition. And friends, when we're rid of that, by the miracle that God will perform in our lives, we'll be an on-fire Christian. We'll be willing to, to be made willing to do anything that God said. If God said go there, we don't question we go there. If God says do this, we don't question we do that. And we do it because we love Him so much, we wouldn't do anything to displease Him. And friends, that's the love that God puts in our hearts when we receive Jesus Christ into the life. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That is the important thing, that Christ lives in me, that my mind, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but was made himself of no reputation. And friends, the human heart Develop, wants to develop a good reputation. 
We all do. And a Christian should have a good reputation. But remember that Jesus made himself of no reputation in this world. And he was the one that created the world. And the humility of Jesus must be our humility. You see, there could not be Pentecost until there was unity, but there could not be unity until there was Jesus' humility. And there could not be Jesus' humility until there was Calvary. There's a statement in Christ Object Lesson 163 that says, The sinner drawn by the power of Christ approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it. There is a new creation. A new heart is given him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. And then holiness finds that it has nothing more to require. Isn't that beautiful? The sinner drawn by the power of Christ. The sinner can't go to Calvary only as he is drawn to Calvary. And Jesus is the only one that can give repentance. Acts 5, 30, 31. You can't repent on your own. It's Jesus in you that brings repentance. It is Jesus in you that draws you to Calvary. And it is Calvary, my friends, as you look up and see what God has done that draws you into an experience. I think of Peter. You see, Peter committed a horrible sin by denying Christ. And he, in Pilate's judgment hall, he raced out of there with, with just heart sick and raced back to Gethsemane and cast himself on the piece of ground where he knew Jesus had prayed during the night. And he wept his heart out. And as the day was breaking, he thought, well, what are they going to do? Amen. he raced back to Jerusalem, and as he approached Golgotha's hill, he looked up and he saw three crosses there. And he, I can see that, that mighty Peter. Uh, you know, Peter was a fisherman, and I can just see he had big shoulders, arms, and he was a strong man. And as he elbowed his way through that crowd, he got right up to, I'm sure, right up to where he could look. And he looked right into the eyes of Jesus. And I believe it's there where Peter was changed, where he was really converted when he looked into Jesus' eyes again and he saw Jesus' eyes and Jesus looked at him and he said he saw there the Son of God dying for Peter. He realized that that was God in human flesh and he, I'm sure he cried out, forgive me God, forgive me. And in that moment we find that of conversion I believe that Peter was never the same again. You see, in in the upper room experience, I can see Peter going over to John and James and saying, forgive me, James, forgive me, John. And as he went around the room asking for forgiveness, and then the day came when the Holy Spirit's power came down like a mighty rushing wind and the, the little tongues of fire were resting upon their heads and suddenly it might have been Peter who raced to the door that had been bolted because of the fear of the Jews and it might have been Peter that threw the door open and raced out into the streets. And it was Peter who came to the temple steps and without fear preached one of the most mighty sermons that converted 3,000 in a day. Oh friends, we need humility of Jesus. You see, it was humility that Peter needed. You remember when he, before Gethsemane, he said to Jesus, he said, don't worry, Jesus, they're not going to touch you. Look at his arms. 
He said, if you don't believe I can take care of you, go down to the waterfront. He said, there's a lot of men down there picked themselves off the sand when I got through. He said, I could take care of him. And he even put a dagger in his, in his sash to make sure that he could live up to his reputation. And when he cut off his, that servant's ear, Caiaphas' servant's ear, I mean, he wasn't aiming at an ear. He was just a bad shot. He wanted to cut his head off. He had murder in his heart. And now we find a different Peter. A Peter who had got out of Laodicea and was in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, when the sinner is drawn by the power of Christ, when he approaches the uplifted cross, there is a new creation, a new heart is given him, he becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus, and is there where the sinner receives the humility of Christ. And before there can be Pentecost, there has to be unity, but there cannot be unity until there's Jesus' humility. And when there's Jesus' humility, my friends, the power of the Lord comes down and fills the life. And we must pray every day, God, give me Jesus' humility. Because that's something we weren't born with. I wasn't born humble, believe me. I was born proud. The carnal heart was very active, and I was born a proud individual. And I always wanted to build a good reputation. I can remember back... <clears throat> I can remember back years ago that um, the experience that I went through after I preached this message for many years. I've been a missionary in Africa. I've been an evangelist. I've been a departmental leader. And, uh, you know, I pastored large churches and small churches. And, uh, but I was doing it, all those good things, baptizing many, many people because I wanted to build a reputation for Ron Spear. And uh, I had a good reputation. I had a reputation that, uh, that I could just call a conference president almost anywhere because of my reputation. And they, they'd say, sure, we can, we can got a church for you. Or we got a department for you. Because I made good statistics. I could build churches. I could uh, baptize people. I could hold meetings. And the Lord always added to my efforts. But all the theme in the back of my mind was to to be a great, great preacher, to build a great reputation so I could fill a big position. And the Lord took that away from me. Praise God, He did. I'm going to tell you a story now. It's a sad one. And I don't like to tell it, but I'll tell it. I've told it all over the world. I had two lovely sons, both strong men, more than six-footers, handsome boys, and uh, my oldest boy called me one day. He'd just been married a few months, and he called me <clears throat> back, it was back in, in about 67, 68, and he said, Dad, he said, I've been drafted. Well, I said, just go to the draft board. I said, uh, you know, uh, and uh, your wife's going to have a child. So I said, go to the draft board, get a doctor to sign the document. And I said, you'll be relieved of that responsibility. <clears throat> and he didn't say anything for a long time. I said, you hear? He said, yes, Dad, but I don't think I could do it. I said, what do you mean? He said, to me, that would be copping out. 
I said, but wait a minute now. I said, I served in World War II, and that was a war we all had to fight because I said, if we didn't, we'd all probably been speaking German or Japanese. But I said, this war is not that like that. And I said, uh, you have no responsibilities to this. Well, I couldn't persuade him on the phone, and I was living in Hawaii at, this, at that time, and my wife and I had just accepted a call to go back to Africa again. We'd been home for a few years. And... Uh, so I said, well, look, I'm going to send you an airplane ticket, and I want you to come and spend a week with me. And so he did. He came. And uh, uh, we were both scuba divers, and so we went down to the beach in, uh, in the mornings, and we'd scuba dive and sit on the beach and talk. And I did everything I could to persuade him. But it's almost like that he had a, that he had a rendezvous with destiny. Because shortly after that, uh, he was in Vietnam, and uh, he hadn't been uh, in the message. Uh, he'd been out of the church, like young, many young men and young people. And uh, so he went to Vietnam, and because he was a highly intelligent boy, they sent him to an intelligent school in Vietnam. And uh, after several months, he graduated. Uh, from intelligence school, the top man of 200 men. And they gave him a command of several men and put them, several men under him and sent him behind enemy lines. And he spent six months behind enemy lines. He told me, Dad, I, I slept every night so close I could smell them. And under that most dangerous duty, the Lord spared his life. Literally hundreds and hundreds of times. He... Uh, <clears throat> He went through some terrible things. He said that even once he stepped into a bunker uh, to to investigate a bunker and had a man shooting at him with an uh, with an automatic weapon from ten feet, and he didn't touch it. So you know that the angels of God were doing something to protect him, because his father now was on his knees every morning, praying and pleading with God to spare his life. And uh, every morning I. You go to shave, and I looked in the mirror, and I didn't look like what I was seeing. I, I began to see Ron Spear like he really was, a proud individual, a man in which was very competent, a man who uh, loved to, uh, to be in a position uh, in which um, the people would uh, give him credit for the good things that he was doing. That year that I had... Two years that I spent in Hawaii, I built two churches and held a group of meetings. We baptized about 60 people, and the Lord had really blessed us. But uh, as, I, uh, as I began to look at myself, the Lord was beginning to teach me some things through the Holy Spirit, and I saw that I wasn't the man I should be. And so I finally, after many years of preaching, I made a full surrender of my life. And up until that point, I didn't know I hadn't made a full surrender. I thought I had, but I hadn't made a full surrender of my life. And I, I had a real conversion experience. And every day, I was on my knees praying for that boy in Vietnam. And I said, God, spare his life today. And uh, the Lord answered those prayers. After 11 months of combat, he came home. His baby was born, and his wife brought the baby uh, over there. We put them in a, a nice hotel, and we took them... Uh, Mom and Dad took care of the baby, and he and his wife enjoyed themselves. And uh, the day came after five days, I drove him down to the airport, him and his wife, 
my wife stayed home with a baby and we waited around. The planes were delayed and so we had a couple hours walking around the airport. And finally the call was made and uh, I can see he was a very, very athletic boy, very strong son. And uh, he jumped over the, the, the railing, uh, picked up his wife, lifted her up, gave her a big hug and a kiss and turned around and ran away. And uh, I saw him going up the, weaving out to the airplane. I saw him with several hundred other boys, and I thought, some of those boys won't come home. But I never thought it would be mine. And uh, 13 days later, I was, all our stuff, our house had been sold, our other our, our things were in boxes, and we were getting ready to go. I came home after about 11 or 12 o'clock at night. The... Uh, I'd been working with one of the people that I'd baptized that had a, a marriage problem, a very serious marriage problem. And so I'd been out late trying to solve that. I walked uh, in, into the front door into my wife's arms with tears streaming down her face. And my, my words were, is he dead? And she just nodded her head and my whole world collapsed. I, I, I just shook and trembled. And I'm not an emotional person. I usually have very good control but uh, it just, it shattered me. And I laid on the floor and wept and wept and wept, and I just couldn't stop crying. I mean, he was, uh, your, your children are your most precious thing in the world. And uh, Randy was me. He looked like me. He was, had the same, uh, the same get up and go that uh, I had when I was young. And... Uh, uh, it just was more than I could take, more than I can understand. And I can remember at 2 o'clock in the morning, I looked at the stars and I said, God, I'll never preach again until you explain this to me. And right there in that moment, God wrote it into my mind and he said, you prayed to, for it, to have him come home and I brought him home. You prayed to have him for eternal life and now you can have him for eternal life. When he was home, friends, he had a... He, committed himself to Jesus Christ. He said, Dad, just as soon as I'm out of Vietnam, I'm back in the church. And he'd even been smoking over there, and uh, he threw cigarettes away. He said, Dad, you don't know what it's like. He said, my boys can't even hold a glass of water in their hands. He said, when those mortars start flying, and, and he said, the machine guns start going, he said, it's unbelievable what happens. And he'd seen so many of his boys shot away from him. And... Uh, He'd been through a horrible experience. He'd been through Armageddon, through his Armageddon. And uh, he had seen uh, so many things. I have a whole drawer full of, of medals that he, for, his, for his courage. And it was his courage that finally killed him. I, he was telling us of his experiences, and I asked him I, as he was leaving, I said, Now, Randy, I said, be sure. I said, you've went way, way beyond the call of duty so many times. Now, do what you have to do, but don't go doing anything that's going to place you in any more danger than you have to. But many times he had left his men behind and went and did things because he said, God, Dad, I'll never ask one of my men to do something unless I'm ready to do it myself. And on this last occasion, he left his men behind and ran in to get a, a, a pilot that was been shot down in a helicopter. And in doing so, he was killed instantly by a sniper. Well, friends, I can't tell you. I mean, there's no way to express the tragedy that comes into your life when you have something like that happen in your family. 
But I want to say that that experience, God knew what was best for him and for me. And that experience welded me into a relationship with God that will never be broken because I've got too much invested in the resurrection. I came home from Africa the last time in 1972. And uh, his little four-year-old son, I put him right alongside of him with a brain tumor. You see, I, I went back to Africa and prayed that God would save that little boy for, for Randy. And he'd married a lovely girl, a beautiful girl, outside the church. And uh, she promised in front of us that she'd raise that little child in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but she broke her promise. And so I began to pray. I said, God, save little John for Randy. And one day I was at, way out in the northeast Tanzania field right under Kalimanjaro, and our mission plane flew in, and the, and the pilot handed me a, a cablegram that said, Little Johnny is dying of a brain tumor. Could you please come home? And I looked at the pilot and I said, a man should never, should never pray unless he's ready for the answer. And so we came home. My mother, wife's a nurse and she sat beside little John for two months. I'd go in and tell him, try to tell him a story, but I just emotionally couldn't take it. Many times I'd break down and weep and have to go out. And then the day came when we put him right alongside his daddy to wait for the resurrection morning. So you see, friends... The reason that I do what I do and travel around the world preaching this marvelous truth is because the marvelous things that God has done in my own life. He saved me from the directions that I had chosen in which I didn't understand was a wrong direction. And he turned Ron Spear around and put me in a relationship with God that I'm ever grateful for every day. When I wake up, I thank him for that relationship, for that beautiful experience that God has given to me. And I wake up always and walk through the day with thanksgiving and praise in my life for what God has done. And um, I've seen the hand of God so many, many times. Beautifully done. So wonderfully protective. I've canoed down rivers in Africa at midnight with hippos and crocodiles on all sides. And uh, with 25 Africans in a big 40-foot dugout and... Uh, friends, I shouldn't even be here. The 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 marvelous preser preservation that God has given to me over my life is marvelous. The the way that God has spared me, and uh, the the I went through two revolutions in Africa, uh, in which thousands of people were killed around us, and God spared our lives, and I praise God for that. And now we're we're come to a very serious hour, and God has spared me for this moment. He spared me for this time to give this marvelous truth. And I don't, I don't come before you today as a great preacher, but I come today before you with a great, great message, a great message of salvation that says if you give your heart and mind and life to Christ, that he'll transform us into his very image and that we will then be able to reach out and touch the souls around us that they too might enjoy uh, that marvelous filling relationship that God is ready to give and that soon that we can all be gathered out of this world into the heavenly home to live forever. And after you have lived a thousand years, uh, ten thousand years, yes, a billion years, you'll have just begun to live. Oh, friends, nothing should separate us from that great love that God has bestowed upon the human race as he gave his own dear son uh, for this world. And I accept that great gift today. How about you? 
I accept that great gift that Jesus and God have given, and I want that gift to go to everyone. I want the world to know and the world to hear that how great God is. And the only way we can do it, friends, is that deep relationship in Jesus Christ by a full surrender every moment of the day and praising God for all the marvelous things, even the trials that come to me. I, I praise God for those trials. I praise God when things get so tough you can hardly understand how you can go forward. And yet we go forward. Because, friends, in, these, in, this, in this moment that we're facing today, that we have just begun to see what can happen. Some of you in this room will probably be martyred before it's over with. Ellen White makes it clear that there will be mart many martyrs. In book Maranatha 199, and as you read Revelation 20, verse 4, those people lose their heads because they refuse the mark of the beast. The test is going to come to everyone. You read volume 7 of the commentary, 976. The test is going to come to every one of you. Bring your life into that relationship. It's a battle and a march every day, friends. And uh, these people that are in the new theology that think all you have to do is believe, friends, my friends are going to hell. And they don't know it. And we've got to help them. What do you say? Amen. We've got to help them. And the only way to help them is to have that deep relationship with God. And that will give us the ability to respond to life like Jesus would respond to life. And sweetness and beauty of the life of Jesus can be lived out in us, each one. How many today would like to make a new commitment to Jesus Christ? Would like to say, by God's power, by God's strength, by God's Holy Spirit, I want to live for Him and Him only. Would you raise your hand in that kind of dedication? And God will see it today and will respond to you in that dedication. And the Lord will bless you and encourage you. Now, I know that I haven't been short-winded again, and I won't be the rest of the day. It'll be a long, it'll be a long day for you, I know. But I think right now we need to take a break. And let's come back in about 15 minutes, and I'm going to speak to you. Are we really Seventh-day Adventists?